0: This is the podcast of Theophilus Church. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com. All right, good evening. Welcome back. Uh, I Before we have uh, Scripture and the Apostles' Creed, there are just a few announcements that I was asked to make. Um, The first of those is that after kind of a summer hiatus from having any food together, uh, we are having a potluck this Sunday. So after the service, go downstairs and fight over the one bag of Juanitas that showed up. And well, no, there's more food than that. We brought uh, more food than that. So um, yeah, even if you didn't bring anything like loaves and fishes, people, the Lord will provide. So come downstairs and we'll have uh, some food together Uh, next week. We are going to have um, some words from Cameron, uh, our pastor. He's going to be talking about like what the fall looks like for us. And so make it a point to be here for sure next week uh, as he kind of lays out a vision of where he feels the Lord's taking our church in this particular season. And some uh, things that we're going to be doing as a congregation and a community uh, together. Uh, we couple more things. We don't have any uh, youth stuff happening tonight. So if you are youth and you're used to leaving right now in the middle of me talking, you'll stay here and you'll have to listen to me preach. And uh, then the final thing is that if you brought a gift to, uh, to bring before God as part of a tie they offering, sort of a, a way of financially giving, um, we have a box that's right in the back that you can drop that in, or you can do giving online. We do that as well. All right. I asked a couple other people if they had any announcements, and nobody did. So uh, with that, would you stand with us? And we're going to uh, recite the Apostles' Creed together and then hear a reading from the scripture.
1: I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit and of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the grave. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Today we read from 1 Peter, chapter 3, starting in verse 18. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God, It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. This is the word of the Lord. Mm -hmm.
0: You may be seated. So we are uh, continuing on in a series that we started this summer on the Apostles' Creed where we're kind of going through phrase by phrase and we're kind of unpacking like, what does the scripture have to say about this? What does Christian tradition have to say about this particular phrase of the creed? And how, would, how do we live this phrase of the creed today? And uh, today we get to the first, I think, real head scratcher for most people when we're reciting the Apostles' Creed together. Everything up to this point has been like pretty plain, like Christian theology. God created stuff, Jesus, Son. Born of a virgin, crucified, died, buried. We get all that, right? Then we come to this line where if you grew up like in an evangelical Protestant church like me, the first time that you read the creed, this was the first time that you did that little doggy head tilt, right? You just went, huh? My dog does that little head tilt whenever I whistle at him, right? He's like, what is that noise? Trying to figure that out. And so today, if I was going to like write out the title of my sermon, it would just be this phrase, he descended into hell but I'd put a question mark at the end of it. Like, what does that mean? He descended to hell. Well, we're going to look at that uh, today. We're going to look at what does the creed mean by hell? Where is this descent by Jesus into hell found in the Bible? What is Jesus supposed to have done while he was in hell? And why does any of that matter? Why do we affirm this as part of Uh, an early Christian creed. So we're going to look at all those things together. Uh, But first, what I'd like for you to do is uh, I just got back into uh, teaching this past week at George Fox, and so it's just my first week of school, and so I've been doing a lot of this in class. So we're going to do a a think-pair-share. I'm putting on my—some of my students just Um, uh, laughed—but I'm putting on my teacher hat. We're going to do a think-pair-share. I want you to take a moment to think about what comes to mind when you hear the word hell— all right? Then I want you to turn to somebody else. This is the pair part. And I want you to tell them what you think of when you hear the word hell. And then I'm going to ask a few people just to call out uh, whatever the hell you want. You see what I did there? I get to say hell a lot in tonight's sermon, all right? So take a moment, think about what I think of when I think of hell. You've probably got something in mind. So go ahead and share with a person or two around you. Ready? Go! All right, now I need, uh, let's get three brave people with loud voices who can just call out something that either you said or that you heard. What do you think of when you think of hell? Yes. Eternal separation from God. Good, two more. What was that? Two more. A place people don't like. All right. Okay, an idea people don't like. One more. People always get what they want, but they do not always like it. You guys have very, like, highbrow definitions of hell. Man, I think of, like, devils and flames and eternal conscious torment and things that are, what's that? Lake of fire, brimstone. Like, yeah, that's what I think of when I think of hell. I don't think I'm the only one that thinks that. Maybe I'm the broken one. I need to do more thinking about hell. I think a lot of us think, though, of fire, pain, darkness, eternal torment, maybe some uh, devil of some sort with a beard and like horns, pitchfork or trident, something like that. I think when we say the word hell, like we're rolling up a lot of ideas into one single word. And that becomes problematic when we turn to the scripture, when we turn to something early in the Christian tradition like the creed, and we see the word hell because we bring to it a whole range of connotations that may or may not match up with what the people who used that word meant. This is especially true in English translations of the Bible. Most of you know, like, the Bible wasn't written in English. It was written in Hebrew and Greek, a little Aramaic peppered in there in a couple of places. And so when we look and find the word hell in the English in Bible, we need to say, well, what, was, what word was there? What were we translating from to get this word hell? And really, in most English versions of the Bible that use the word hell, uh, there are kind of uh, two different things that are being translated there, two different ideas or concepts added to our own concept of what hell is. And we're going to talk about maybe where that concept came from. One of the most uh, common words that's used in the Greek and in the Hebrew to refer to hell is a Hebrew word named uh, called Sheol, or Sheol. You'll find that a lot in uh, the Psalms. And then there's the Greek equivalent of that word is Hades. Both of these words, Sheol and Hades, uh, they reflect this uh, kind of a Jewish cosmology. And they literally mean the, the, the underworld, the place of the dead, the underworld. And in a Jewish cosmology, there were kind of three levels to things, to the created order. There was the heavens. Now that was up top. You're going to draw this out. You'd have the heavens, the sky. This is the dwelling place of God. This is where the angels are, the heavens. Below that, the earth. This is where all of the created stuff is. This is where we exist, where animals exist. We walk upon the earth. Then there was a third realm called Sheol, the under earth. And this is where people would go when they died. So the dead, the souls of the dead, and even their bodies, if you're looking at this sort of three-part uh, cosmology, you buried people under the earth in that like top part of shale. but they, they existed there. They waited there for a final judgment. This is the place uh, that the, the dead would go and await the final judgment, and it's not just like the bad dead that go there, the unrighteous, but the righteous go there as well. Some... Uh, rabbis doing a little bit of like uh, exegesis on this uh, concept of of Sheol would talk about there maybe being two different parts of Sheol. There's like the part where the unrighteous go, and maybe that's a little less appointed than the part where the righteous go to kind of wait out this final judgment. But everybody goes there. That's where everybody ends up. And so Sheol, and the Greek concept Hades, uh, that is what we find in many of the biblical passages that mention That we would translate as hell, especially a lot of those in the Old Testament. But there's a second word that came up in the Greek that we usually translate hell, and that word is Gehenna, and Gehenna is actually a place. It's it's a real physical place. There's archaeological digs there right now. It's just south of Jerusalem, also called the Valley of Hinnom. It's located really close to Mount Zion, and this is a place that people referred to that we also give the name of hell. And why would that be? Well, this was a place that had a really storied history to it, especially in the, people, the lives of the people of Israel. In Jeremiah 7 and Jeremiah 19, we read about the kings of Judah, who some evil kings of Judah, who conducted child sacrifice in the Valley of Hinnom. Child sacrifice by fire. They killed these children by burning them alive, and then their bodies smoldered there. And so this became a cursed place. And as a cursed place, the people of Israel that lived in Jerusalem for generations and generations turned it kind of into a trash dump. So this was a place where people would bring their refuse and they would put it in the Valley of Hinnom. And it would burn there. And if you've ever seen a fire that's kind of smoldering, if you keep on giving it fuel, it'll just keep on burning. This was known as a place of everlasting fire. The fire never went out because it kept adding, getting trash added to it. It was also, it continued to be a place where bodies would get dumped. If you were wealthy enough, middle class or higher, you could afford to be buried and Jewish burials were full burials uh, under the ground if possible or in a tomb above ground. But if you couldn't afford that, then your body had to be disposed of somehow and so it would be crudely cremated in the Valley of Hinnom, in Gehenna. You can imagine what it would be like to attend a funeral there, right? There's already the shame of not being able to afford a place to be buried and to have the rights that go with that. But now to see your loved one so crudely cremated, I imagine that there was a lot of weeping that happened in Gehenna. And like dumps today, I can imagine that there were wild animals, that hung out there. When I uh, lived in Virginia Beach, I was going to seminary there. And uh, just this past summer, uh, took uh, my wife April and I, we took our kids to Virginia Beach uh, to see their grandparents and also to drive around some of the places that uh, we had lived when they were, we were first married. And so we decided to take uh, the girls over to the first apartment that April and I lived in after we'd moved to Virginia Beach and before we bought a, a little place there. And it was right next to the university where I was studying. And we drove up to this apartment and the like right before, like if you, if you just passed the apartment, the road dead ends and it dead ends into this municipal dump. And so like all the time there's like trash trucks coming like down this road to go to the dump. And on really hot days with the winds just right, like the whole apartment complex smelled like trash. But we would also see, like all the time, we saw stray dogs, we saw coyotes, raccoons, possums, skunks, all sorts of animals. This was like a buffet for them. Like they would go to the dump and they would just like feast there. I imagine that a place like Gehenna would also have wild animals that would come. My guess is they would get in tussles sometimes over the things that they would find there. Find a really choice piece of meat without too many maggots in it. And you're probably going to have a little fight over that. There might have been some gnashing of teeth in Gehenna. And about those those maggots and worms, like I bet it seemed like those things never died. They just kept coming over and over and over again in Gehenna. See, Gehenna became this metaphor that the rabbis used to talk about what it would be like to die an unrighteous person. But even for the rabbis, when you look at some of the rabbinical literature on this, the maximum amount of time that they could imagine anyone having to suffer in Gehenna would be one year, no matter how bad a person you were. Jesus even talks about Gehenna. In some of the famous passages where he mentions hell, he's talking about Gehenna. In Mark 9, he says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands go into Gehenna where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into Gehenna. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into Gehenna, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. That's the second word that we often use to trans- or translate into hell in the scripture. So we've got Sheol, we've got this underworld, that's kind of riding in this word hell. We've got Gehenna, this kind of place of child sacrifice and town dump where the fire never goes out, that is under this word of hell. And then we bring our own concepts to it. Some of the things that you all just said, whether they're like literal or abstract, we bring our own concepts to this word hell. And so when we read hell in the creed and in the scriptures, we may pull from some amalgamation of those things. Most of the understanding that we have of hell is really more due to some medieval-like writing and allegory than it is to anything that we would find in the scripture. Dante Alighieri had a wonderful impact on our idea of hell. Nine circles of hell, all sorts of different, like holding places for people of different sins. Uh, Albrecht Durer, who was a, an artist in... Uh, the Middle Ages, he did these wonderful wood cuttings, like very, very graphic wood cuttings of what hell must look like according to Dante. And you put these two things together, disseminate them around, and all of a sudden, their vision of what hell might be like becomes like gospel truth. This is what hell is. And we bring that in with us as well. We think of it as this place of fire and brimstone, where the unrighteous go to be forever, eternally tormented. We think of it as being the opposite of heaven, the opposite of paradise, the antithesis of forever dwelling with God. And I think in many Christian traditions in the 20th and 21st century, and certainly the one that I grew up in, it was hell was often used as a foil by preachers and evangelists as a tool to move someone towards making a particular decision about the gospel. If you died tonight, are you sure you would go to heaven? Or might you end up in hell? We could spend the rest of the night debating various concepts of hell and what happens to those who die not reconciled to God through Christ. But that would take us off course, because that's not primarily what the creed is concerned with. The creed isn't as much interested in describing hell as it is in making the point that Jesus went there after his death. So what does the creed mean by hell? Well, it's not a place of eternal conscious torment, at least in the way that we associate it with that word, because that concept of hell didn't really exist in the minds of the early church. And that concept of hell really doesn't come into play in the minds of church theologians until after the last judgment. No one's condemned to eternal torment before the final judgment. So the creed couldn't be talking about that idea of hell. The creed really isn't talking about Gehenna. The creed isn't saying that Jesus went and hung out in a dump for a day before his resurrection. That's not what the creed means by hell. The creed uses hell in that first sense. That Christ went to Sheol, Christ went to the underworld, the place where the dead go to await that final judgment. The Latin word that is used for this in the creed is inferos. It means low or deep, and it came to be a world associated, a word associated with the underworld. The earliest versions of the creed are in Latin and contain this word, inferos, that Jesus descended, ad inferos, to the low place, to the deep place. An interesting thing happens, though, in a later version of the creed, where somebody tries to correct the theology of the creed there and changes the word inferos and adds an in into into it, infernos, infernos. And that's where we start to get this idea that Jesus went to this fiery place of brimstone, that Jesus went to the fiery hell. So the clearest rendering of this phrase might not be he descended into hell, but might be, as some of the other versions of the creed render it, he descended to the dead, or he descended to the place of the dead. Well, what does that mean? And like, where do you find this whole descent thing in the Bible, right? Right? As we look at the Gospels, and there doesn't seem to be any talk of a descent to hell. Jesus has died. Jesus is crucified. Jesus dies. He's buried. We follow the story of the disciples. And then they go to the tomb, and he's not there anymore. And they start to see the resurrected Christ. So really, we're talking in this descent portion about what happened on Holy Saturday. So what can we know? Well, one of the things that we can know is that the creed is tracking the incarnation here. Jesus, with God the Father Almighty, descends from heaven to earth in the incarnation. His earthly body is killed and he descends even further into the place of the dead. And then in this really neat chiastic structure, this kind of reversal of course, we're going to see in the creed that Jesus goes from this place that he descended to and he rose from the grave Back into that earthly realm, and then he ascends into heaven. So Jesus is going down and down and down in the incarnation, and up and up and up through the resurrection and the ascension. Several New Testament passages do allude to a descent to a lower place or a lower region. One of them, Karen read for us earlier tonight, 1 Peter three eighteen through twenty two. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And after being made alive, he went and made a proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. Goes on to talk about those who were lost in the generation of Noah. Ephesians 4, 8 through 10 is sort of a little uh, exploration of part of a psalm on the apostle Paul's part. And he says, this is why it says, referring to a psalm, this is why it says when he ascended on high... He took many captives and gave gifts to his people. And then Apostle Paul has this parenthetical explanation there. He says, What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Again, in the book of Acts, chapter 2, we have Peter speaking. And he quotes a psalm. This psalm says, you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your holy ones see decay. And Peter goes on to explain that. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. And John, in the book of Revelation, describes Jesus in the very first chapter as being a faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. Now that may not be enough for us to say, see, it says it right in scripture, he descended into hell. But this is what the early church fathers used as a way of talking about what happened on that Holy Saturday. They used these passages and some others, especially Irenaeus, who we talked about last week, who is a second century theologian. He writes through these passages and others in detail about, descend, about Jesus descending to the dead between his death and resurrection. So when we affirm together every Sunday that Jesus descended to the dead. We're on solid Christian ground. Christians have been affirming this very idea for 2,000 years. See, it's another way of affirming Christ's full death. He didn't skip the nasty part. He didn't hibernate. He didn't freeze himself in time. He didn't go back to heaven to wait out the clock until the resurrection. He experienced a full human death in his full humanity. So whatever happens to humans when they die happened to Jesus also. He didn't opt out of any of it. So what happened when he went there? Like, what was he doing? He'd get his own room. I used to live in Philadelphia, and there's a place that was a few blocks away from where we lived called Eastern State Penitentiary. Now, it wasn't a penitentiary when we lived there, but it was uh, the United States' first penitentiary. I think it may have been the world's first penitentiary. It was uh, designed not as a prison or a jail just to hold people and allow them to do their punishment, but it was designed to be this place where people would do penance. It was the first early attempt at like uh, some sort of rehabilitative um, a place for criminals. We could go into a, like the design of that is super fascinating, and it drove more people crazy than it did rehabilitate them, but... Uh, it was kind of this uh, eerie place. It's been the site of a lot of like, ghost hunter shows and things like that. Um, it was on the historic registry of places. And rather than take the Eastern State Penitentiary and like, turn it back into what it looked like in its heyday, they decided, we're just going to stop it from decaying anymore. We're not going to clean it up. We're just going to stop the decay so it doesn't fall apart any more than it already has. So there's like some crumbled walls, like paint flaking. And you can go and you can pay a couple bucks and you can tour this thing. And one of their like, little prize like parts of Eastern State Penitentiary is just off of where the, the, the guard circle was, is this one cell, and they have this all kind of done up. This was where Al Capone stayed. Al Capone was only in prison once before he, was, uh, before he died. He was only in prison once. It was in Philadelphia. It was for a tax evasion crime, and he just happened to get caught. He did not stay in there very long. But it's really interesting because you go look in this cell, it has like a Victrola, like a record player there. It's got a big easy chair, a big rug, and there's this little plaque there that talks about how when Al Capone was imprisoned in Eastern State Penitentiary, he got all of this special treatment. He was already a celebrity. So it wasn't even like hard for him. Like he was able to order that some of his stuff from home be brought in and his single cell be apportioned all specially for him. And so they've kept it just like that. So we could see kind of what it was like for Al Capone to be in prison. So is that what it was like for Jesus? Like he goes to hell and then like there's this special little like VIP, like velvet rope, Jesus gets to go in there. Nobody else does. After a day, okay, he can come back out. Thanks guys. And then he goes back up. What was going on there? Well, according to the scripture, we really don't know much. The scripture doesn't testify to that directly at all. The closest that we get is that First uh, that Peter 3 passage that we just read. That he preached to imprisoned spirits, carried a message to the imprisoned spirits that were there. We don't know what that message was exactly, but if we look back at the Gospels, we can probably take a pretty good stab at it. His message was pretty consistent about repentance and reconciliation to God. But this whole like, idea of like what did Jesus do in hell is something that church theologians uh, call the, ha- the harrowing of hell. Uh, to harrow something, that's an agricultural turn, uh, term. It means to like plow up, to turn over, right? The harrowing of hell. Maybe this starts to give you an idea of what Jesus was up to there. An early Christian tradition developed, for sure by the second century, that, and this is uh, what we would call speculative theology, Right? This is theology that uses one's imagination in line with Bible and theological principles to think like what might it have been like, speculative theology. And the early Christian tradition of speculative theology imagines this very rich interaction between Jesus and the, the departed who were in the realm of the dead. In a book from the, the fourth century, uh, there's this addendum that's on the end of it, and it's written, it's called the Acts of Pilate, and it's written on uh, yeah, from the first person point of view of someone in hell. And this is what this person says that they observed. They said that a great light suddenly appeared in hell, this place of darkness. And that Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, said, This is the light that I prophesied about. Simeon, do you remember Simeon from the Luke story where it says uh, uh, he held the Christ child and he said, This truly is the Holy One of God? And it, it was, he had been promised that he would not die before he held the Lord's anointed. Simeon says, that's who I held. That light that's coming in here, that's who I held. John the Baptist, he's there. And he says, this is the one I prepared the way for, who I baptized in the Jordan. King David says, like, open up the doors to hell. Let this guy come in. So in this story, the, the gates of hell fly open and Jesus enters. And it just like chases away all of the darkness and then, again, this is written in the fourth century. Century. Adam. Jesus goes to Adam and extends a hand to him. And he says, peace to you and to all your children. And then Adam falls to his knees and worships Jesus. Jesus pulls him up off of his knees and the two of them lead the righteous out of hell, hand in hand to the archangel Michael, who takes them away to heaven. Earlier than that, 200 years before that, there's a sermon from a second century uh, guy, a saint named St. Saint Melito, he's from Sardis, and he imagines in even more detail what it must have been like for Jesus to encounter Adam in hell. So I'm, this is so beautiful that I'm just gonna read a few paragraphs of this. This is Jesus speaking to Adam in the harrowing of hell from a second century sermon. Jesus says to Adam, awake, sleeper. I've not made you to be held a prisoner in this underworld, Arise from the dead, I am the life of the dead. Arise, O man, work of my hands. Arise, you who were fashioned in my image. Rise and let us go hence, for you and me, and I and you, together we are one undivided person. For you, I, your God, became your son. For you, I, the master, took on your form, that of a slave. For you, I, who am above the heavens, came to the earth and to the under earth. For you, man, I became as a man without help, free among the dead. For you who left a garden, I was handed over to the Jews from a garden and crucified in a garden. Look at the spittle on my face, which I received because of you, in order to restore you to that first divine in-breathing at creation. See the blows on my cheeks, which I accepted in order to refashion your distorted form to my own image." See the scourging on my back, which I accepted in order to disperse the load of your sins, which was laid upon your back. See my hands nailed to the tree for a good purpose for you, who stretched out your hand to the tree for an evil one. I slept on the cross and a sword pierced my side for you, who slept in paradise and brought forth Eve from your side. My side healed the pain of your side. My sleep will release you from your sleep in Hades. My sword has checked the sword, which was turned against you. But arise, let us go hence. The enemy brought you out of the land of paradise. I will reinstate you. No longer in paradise, but on the throne of heaven. I denied you the tree of life, which was a figure, but now I myself am united to you, I who am life. I posted the cherubim to guard you as they would slaves. Now I make the cherubim worship you as they would God. The cherubim throne has been prepared. The bearers are ready and waiting. The bridal chamber is in order. The food is provided. The everlasting houses and rooms are in readiness. The treasures of good things have been opened. And the kingdom of heaven has been prepared for the ages. What would it be like to hear Jesus say that to you? I'd be a blubbery freaking mess, man. You can see how the early views of atonement that we talked about last week are being played out here. Jesus is on this divine rescue mission. And if we imagine what it must have been like to be in hell when Jesus arrived, to bust free from the righteous, the righteous from their captivity, I think we'd be amazed. Some people have imagined this for a long, long time. In fact, in the, the eastern wing of the church, the Orthodox Church, if you look at a, an icon of the resurrection, you'll find that it's set in hell. And I have one here from my house that I'm going to pass around. This this is a Russian uh, Orthodox icon of the resurrection called Descent into Hell. And as you look at this, you'll notice a couple of things. Jesus is enthroned in light, as we read about earlier. He's standing on these two what look like panels. And those panels making the form of a cross are the gates of hell. He's busted the gates of hell off of their hinges. If you look really closely in the space right around the gates of hell that he stands on, triumphantly, you'll notice all of these keys and locks that are kind of floating in this blackness. The keys and locks to hell are floating in the abyss. They can never hold people in ever again. On the left, we see David and Solomon and some other uh, patriarchs of Israel who are looking on. We see John the Baptist and some other prophets on the right. And in the center, we see Jesus and he's reaching out his hands to Adam, the first person who's on his knees and Eve stands right beside him. And you'll see this little square that they're standing in. That's their grave. And Jesus reaches out to grab his hand and to pull him up off of his knees. When the Eastern half of the church thinks about resurrection and they paint this, they don't paint an empty tomb. They paint the harrowing of hell, the activity of Christ. The implication of all of this is that everyone who has died all the way back to Adam can be redeemed. No one gets left out. But why would any of this matter? Couldn't we just like leave this out of the creed since it's not like absolutely scriptural? I don't think so. I think that the people who, the community who developed the creed knew exactly what they were doing. Descended to the dead, descended to hell. I've been switching back and forth as I've been talking about it. I think that from a very technical standpoint, that descended to the dead is probably more accurate. It's true to what the community of Christians have affirmed for 20 centuries. And it gets us outside of maybe some of our own more modern conceptions of what hell must be like, whether those are abstracted concepts of hell or maybe way too literal, but literal in the wrong direction, concepts of hell. Maybe descended to the place of the dead or descended to the dead is a more helpful reading for us. But it means at least four things. First, that Jesus' death was real, that Jesus' death was complete, it was human. He didn't skip Hades in favor of heaven, He went to where the dead go. The second thing it must mean is that Jesus' redemption was full and complete. It reaches all the way back to Adam and Eve, the first sins. None of humanity is left out of this offer of redemption in Christ. The third thing that it must mean is that Jesus' death was active, not passive. He wasn't in limbo. He wasn't waiting something out. He didn't go back to heaven. Jesus was busy on Holy Saturday while his disciples mourned. The fourth thing that it must mean is that Jesus was victorious. He went to the place of the dead just like all the dead must, but it could not hold him. His resurrection is a return from the place that was thought to have no return. But I don't know that we should necessarily give up on the phrase he descended to hell either. It means at least all of those same things, but maybe it's more meaningful for some of us. And here's why. Because if we take all of our concept of what hell must be or what hell could be, and we understand that Jesus went there, Jesus conquered that place, and Jesus returned, then we can also affirm with all of Christians throughout Christian history that there's no place that we can go that Jesus has not been. You've been listening to the podcast of Theophilus Church. We hope you've been inspired and challenged by what you've heard. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com.